get a little further. Genesis 39, we just left um, Joseph sold as a slave. <clears throat> Genesis 39 says that Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. The Lord was with Joseph. He was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And he, Potiphar, made Joseph overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass... From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught that he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. Now, we don't know exactly how much time from verse 1 to verse 6. From the time Joseph was bought by Potiphar until that phrase, until he came to the point that all he had, he left in his hand. But I think that's more time than what I, at least, tend to think about at first reading. I think we can assume that that was probably years to, for that to take place, five, ten years maybe. We know that it was 13 years from the time that Joseph went out to check on his brothers until he became ruler in Egypt. And it was two years before that that we know that he was still in prison. So, now I'm not saying that it had to be at least five years, but I'm thinking that, okay, Joseph is a teenager a foreigner, he doesn't know the language, he doesn't know the culture, he really doesn't know anything about doing things in Egypt. And I think that this was something that over a period of time, he came to the place that Potiphar left everything in his hands. And you know, when I, when I stop and think about it, that it was over a period of time, that, that brings a, just enforces the idea more of the fact of how committed he was to living right and doing right. So that finally, Potiphar just turned everything over to him. Now, why did Potiphar promote Joseph? says that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper. How did Potiphar know that it was the Lord that made Joseph successful? That's one of those things, you know, sometimes I wish there were more details in this story. But if we stop and think... The only way that this pagan ruler, 
but lived in a land that served many gods. I mean, how did he even know who the Lord was? I think the, the reason that he knew that it was the Lord that prospered Joseph was that Joseph let him know about his Lord. He didn't cover up who he was serving. Joseph knew enough, and I don't know how much he knew and how he got it. Those are details that we don't know. But, but I think the fact remains, I said, stated as a fact, yeah, I think so. He knew enough about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God that he was convinced that he is the only Lord God and the only one worth serving. And I think he was so convinced that, of that fact that he was committed to following God faithfully even when he didn't understand why those adversities had come and what it was all about. Because he was convinced that he was following the only true to God, he wasn't afraid to let others know about him. And because he let God be God in his life, God made everything that he did to prosper. And who did the prospering benefit? God made Joseph successful, but what benefit was the success to him? He wasn't even getting paid. The success, his success benefited Potiphar. That phrase in uh, 39, verse 4, um, Potiphar, all that he had, he put into his hand. That's kind of a loaded phrase. We would probably say that Potiphar gave Joseph the position of general manager. That meant that he supervised all the servants and the employees. He handled Potiphar's public relations reviewed his financial statements, and was administrator of all of Potiphar's agriculture and business interests. In verse 5, notice that he made all that was in the house and in the field to prosper. So, you business owners, how would you like that kind of general manager? A hard-working man with a brilliant mind and so committed to integrity and following God that you don't even ask him for a regular financial report. Potiphar, the only thing you concerned yourself about was what he ate. That, you know, it, it boggles my mind when I think about what that statement really means. Then, verse 6 ends with, Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Handsome in form and appearance, is another translation says. We would tend to say that Joseph had it all. He was smart, he was industrious, he was successful, he was good-looking. So, does that, having all of that, does that exempt someone from temptation? Obviously, no, right? 
Joseph's success was caused by God. But that didn't insulate him from temptation. It almost seems from scripture that Satan is especially adamant about going after successful people. Take Job, for example. So, verse 7, came to pass after these things, and after all this time, I, I insert in there, that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. Note the response in verse 8, but he refused. That wasn't a, well, I don't think I should let me think about it kind of refusal. That was a, I absolutely can't do that kind of refusal. And he gave a good solid reason for not following her proposition. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 from NIV. I kind of like the way that puts it. Joseph said, with me in charge, my master is not concerned with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I think there's two strong convictions that Joseph had that were the deterrents to yielding to the temptation of sin. First of all, he says, my master trusts me. I, I can't break his trust. I mean, it's just, that's just the way it is. That puts a question, you know, to me when I thought about that, how determined Joseph was that he can't break his master's trust. Are we? Am I? Living my life in such a way that that I know that there are people that trust me to not yield to temptation, like our children, marriage partners, fellow Christians, even non-Christian friends and business associates. Do they trust you? And are you going to not break that trust? Then besides that, Joseph said, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He didn't say, I'd be scared to do that because of what my God might do to me. He said, how can I do that wicked thing and sin against God? His motivation for following God and doing what God said was not what he feared from God, but because he knew who God is, and he can't do that wicked thing against his God. Now, notice, does being convinced and sure that I can't do that wicked thing, does that mean temptation goes away? Obviously not. At least it didn't for Joseph. Potiphar's wife, look at uh, verse 10. Came to pass as she spoke to Joseph day by day or day after day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. 
That might have gone on for months. We don't know. It doesn't say. But she kept persisting. But he wouldn't listen to her, and he refused to be with her. But apparently, Potiphar's wife kind of figured out his schedule or was so determined that she found him alone one day. And verse 39, 12 says, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now there's some, uh, that uh, translation in King James, got him out, is not quite the way we would say it. But, you know, I kind of like it. Joseph got him out. No one else was going to get him out. God provides a way of escape, but you have to take the way out. So, is it any wonder that Potiphar was angry? And a lot of people have asked the question, why didn't Potiphar have him killed? After all, this was a slave violating a very important man's wife. Why wasn't Joseph killed? Well, there there could be various answers. Maybe Potiphar didn't really even believe her story. But he had to stick him in prison to save face. But the real answer, why didn't Potiphar kill him? Because God was with him. Because God had a plan for him. Because God knew what he wanted to do with Joseph and his faithfulness. So, 39, verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. So Joseph is faithful, follows God, avoids, resists the temptation, even tries to avoid being where he would be tempted. He doesn't violate the trust of his earthly master or his heavenly father. And he's cast into prison. Isn't it one of the times that it's most easy to feel bitterness and resentment is when you think you're treated unfairly? But obviously, Joseph didn't go there, or at least didn't spend much time there. He overcame that. Following is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so good, so kind, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Now, I don't know what Joseph thought the first day he was in prison, but I think it's correct to say that he didn't become angry, bitter, and resentful. At least he didn't stay there long if those thoughts passed through his mind. All right, so Joseph is in prison, moving on, um, and two very important men are brought into prison, and Joseph is assigned to serve them. Uh, Notice in verse 4, the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. The captain of the guard particularly gave these two men to Joseph and 
told him to take care of him. And by the way, who's the captain of the guard? Interesting. Now, I don't know how long it took either in prison for Joseph to come to the place where um, you know, he became prosperous in prison and everything that he did, you know, everything that happened in prison, he was basically in charge of. But I think it probably didn't take as long there because of the fact that the captain of the guard was, was involved in, in the situation here. And probably that's part of what helped to build up the trust. The butler and the baker both dreamed a dream the same night and were troubled about their dreams. When Joseph came in to where they were in the morning in verse 6, it says uh, they were sad. And then he asked in verse 7, Why, wherefore look ye so sadly today? And I think that's an interesting window into the heart of Joseph to tell you where he was at the moment. When you, you don't have to raise your hands or answer this, but because maybe this never happens to you. But when you're down in the dumps about something, do you notice if somebody else is? See, Joseph had a heart for those men. He knew them. And when, when he walked into where they were that morning, he saw something is wrong. And he asked them. And is able, by God's help, to get them answers. And why, after he interprets the, the butler's dream and, and tells him that, uh, you know, within three days he'll be back in his job, he puts in a plug kind of for himself at the moment. When, and when you get back to Farewa, um, put in a word for me. There's an interesting verse in chapter 40, verse 15. Well, uh, let me read verse 14. Think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. I'll, Talk to Pharaoh, and I'd like to get out of prison. For indeed, I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that should put me in this dungeon. Doesn't say it, but it's implied there, uh, that he was brought here against his own will, and, and he doesn't really belong here, and he wants to go home. But now... And then he interprets the baker's dreams. And now think about how he might be feeling three days later. Wonder. Wonder how soon there'll be word. I wonder if the butler you know, said anything and if Fair listened, paid attention. Yet, verse 23 did not the chief butler remember, but forgot. What a depressing statement. 
And it came to pass at the end of two full years, in verse 1 of chapter 41, that Pharaoh dreamed his dream. And I'm not going to go into details. I think the dreams are familiar to you. But Pharaoh's desperate. Got to know what this dream means. And I think that part of the reason that that he needed to know what the dream means was because of the similarity between the two. And there were two two dreams. And notice that, uh, see, um, in verse 4, after the dream about the cattle, at the end of verse 4, so Pharaoh awoke. And he slept and dreamed the second time. Then he dreamed about the corn. And verse 7, the end of the verse, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. It's like... After the second dream, he woke up right, it seems like, and realizes, oh, I had a dream, and I had two dreams. And in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he tried to get answers to his dream. And then the butler remembered, and he called for Joseph. 41.15, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. Now, if it hadn't been for Joseph's close relationship with his God, and the fact that his God is with him, and he knows that his God is with him, I'm suggesting that this situation right now would have been an even stronger temptation to do wrong than what Potiphar's wife had suggested. He's been waiting two full years for this day. How strong was or could have been the temptation to say, when Pharaoh says, I understand that you can interpret dreams, how strong might the temptation have been if he hadn't been close to God to say, yeah, I can. What do I get for a correct interpretation? My freedom, maybe? But he didn't go there. His answer, in essence, was, I can't interpret dreams, but the God who is with me can. He will give you an answer of peace in verse 41, or chapter 41, 16. An answer of peace, or a Satisfactory answer, I think he was saying. Joseph was 30 years old at the time. So he tells Pharaoh his dreams, and by God's direction, he gives the interpretation, explaining to Pharaoh that it's really only one dream, but it was given twice to establish the fact that it was from God, and that it will happen shortly. It brings God right into it again when he gives the interpretation. All right. Don't have time to go into the details about all the things that Pharaoh did when he promoted Joseph to be in charge of the land. Joseph had told him that he needs to get ready for this famine that's coming and prepare for the 
that famine. There's going to be seven years of plenty first. So for the third time in his life, Joseph is given complete responsibility for everything. And in one sense, there wasn't even a, a, a time of proving and gradually moving up. And as he was called out of prison and seems as though he was given that responsibility like in one day. Now, to the butler and to other people that were there, it could appear that Joseph had gone from prison to the palace in one day. That's not really the way it happened, did it? It took 13 years to get him there. And maybe more than 13. God was, I think, already preparing him before he was sold into slavery. Note verse 44. In um, chapter 41. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Nobody in Egypt can do anything without, Pharaoh, without Joseph's permission. How could Joseph handle that? without going to his head. I don't remember who made this statement. I failed to make a note of that. But men and women who are forced to live in circumstances totally beyond their control and who live with the consciousness that God is with them come through more convinced than ever that without God, they can do nothing. A.W. Tozer once said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Do you believe that? Do you like it? All right, I really have to move fast forward. About two years into the famine, seven years after Joseph's promotion, his brothers come to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph has been busy in those last seven years. And, uh, yeah, part of the story that we jumped over. His memory has been healed. But one day, he meets his brothers face to face, and they bow before him, and he remembers the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And I wonder if Joseph, when he remembered the dreams, also remembered lots of pieces of the puzzle that are fitting together now. I wonder if he said something like, Thank you, Lord. I get it now. I don't know. But Joseph obviously was thinking right thoughts the day his brothers came in front of him and he remembered his dream. Do you see the splendid chance he would have 
to get even. Or we didn't have to use the term get even to teach his brothers what they needed to learn. You can't do wrong and get by. <laughs> you could have, you know, take it out on them. At this point, some of Joseph's questions get answered. Um, chapter 42, 13, when, you know, he started asking some questions and making them, uh, accusing them of being spies and so on. They said, thy servants are 12 brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. He knows some answers to some questions that, that I think I've been bugging him for the last 13 years. His father and Benjamin are still alive. He knows that. And he also has, in the meantime, when he overheard them talking among themselves after he had Simeon put in prison, he realizes that they know that they sinned against him. But there's still, I think, questions burning in Joseph's mind that he needs answers to. He still wants to know, how do they treat Benjamin? Are they still insensitive toward their father's feelings? Or where's, where's their conscience by now? Is it so hard? And I think it's because Joseph just had to have answers to those questions that he didn't reveal himself right away. He put them through some tests. And the last test that he put them through was when he had this steward put his silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then, you know, then go after the man and accuse him of stealing. And they insisted that they hadn't, but here it was found in Benjamin's sack. So they load their donkeys and head back and get to Joseph in his house. Several times before, they had bowed before Joseph, just as they resisted the idea, you know, of that happening because of the dreams that he had. But several times, they had bowed before him. In chapter 44, verse 14, when they came back, when Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, when he was back, when they went back there to, you know, to bring the silver cup back. They fell before him on the ground, it says there. It's a even more prostrate lowering of themselves before him. Judah is the main spokesman when they come back. Remember, it was Judah that had suggested to sell him. And remember, too, that by this time, they really, I guess, think that Joseph is dead because they had told him that a younger brother's home with their father and one is not. And remember that 
they're communicating via an interpreter. But there's something interesting here in uh, verse 18. Judah came near to him and he said, O my Lord, let my servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not thine anger burn against thy servant for thou art even as Pharaoh. Judah recognizes this man's high position. He's like Pharaoh. And I, I think if I understand that right, he says, I'd like to whisper something to you, to talk to you in your ears. And I don't know why that is particularly, and yet I think that he didn't want Benjamin to hear what he's saying. I said, I think, you know, I, I can prove that. But I'm just going to read briefly, you know, what's in the next couple of verses in my own words. Judah says, don't be upset with me. I'd like to talk in your ear to you. And then Judah reminds Joseph all the things that he already knew, how that they had told him that their father had two sons of his old age and that one was dead and that if their father loses their other son, he would die. Judah says, I told my father that the younger brother needs to come along or we won't be able to buy food. And I told my father that if I don't bring him back, I'll bear the blame forever. So let me stay as a slave instead of my brother. Because the steward had said, the one in whose sack the cup is found needs to come back as a slave. And Judah also said, I can't stand to think of what will happen to my father if I went home without my younger brother. At that moment, Joseph said, everybody out. Everybody except his brothers. And he wept. I don't know if you know, I, I don't think we can fathom the emotion or the thoughts that went through those brothers' minds at that moment when Joseph said, everybody out. And then he just cried so loud, it says, that Pharaoh's house hurt. <laughs> there would have been a confusion of guilt, fear, misunderstanding, shock. I don't know what all went through those brothers' minds. I don't think so. Do you? I wondered how he felt Yeah, yeah. I know it's time to quit. I just, may I go on a little bit longer yet? I, I, I won't be offended if anybody gets up and, and, and walks out, if you, if you need to go over for your children and so on, but it's the wrong place to stop. Joseph makes it really clear to them, then tells them who he is. And he makes it so clear to them that don't, don't blame yourselves for what you did. You meant it for evil, he says, but God meant it for good. And God had a purpose in this. The one thing that I'd like for us to think about yet is that 
Jacob was 130 years old when he moved to Egypt, and he was 147 when he died. That means Jacob and his family lived 17 years in the land of Egypt. Joseph had lived 17 years at home, 22 years alone in Egypt, now 17 years with his father and brothers and nieces and nephews and all those. But Jacob had asked that he be buried in Canaan. And the boys, the brothers, I say boys, they're grandfathers by now, some of them, honored that request and went back to Canaan and buried him. And then when they came back afterward, I want to go to chapter 50. His sons did so, did unto him according as he commanded him, buried him, and then they came back and in verse 16, they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, thy father did command before he died saying, so shall you say unto Joseph, forgive I pray thee now the trespasses of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. Now I pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. These men, after coming back from burying their dad, are afraid that now Joseph is going to get them. And so they send a messenger to Joseph and said, Dad said before he died, forgive us for what we did. It doesn't say, but I don't think Jacob had ever said that. I think they made that up. If Jacob would have really wanted, been concerned that Joseph hasn't forgiven and wants him to forgive, I think he'd have talked to Joseph about it. Now, again, I'm, it's just, that's what I think. But the thing that impresses me is, verse, end of verse 17, Joseph wept when they, the messengers, spake unto them. And apparently the brothers were not far behind. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. They were so scared of what Joseph is going to do to them now that dad isn't here. They said, they came to him and said, We'll be your servants. Joseph wept. I think there, again, we see the heart, his heart. Putting in my own words, I think Joseph said to them, didn't I tell you before, didn't you get it? God planned this. Don't blame yourselves. Yeah, you meant it for evil. It was wrong, it was wrong but God had a plan in it. So, And the words aren't there. But Joseph was saying to them, yes, yes, I forgive you. I have forgiven you. It 
if anything else that I, I mean, if you don't remember anything else that I said, and if you don't remember any specific lessons that I may have pointed out along the road, remember these two concepts. God's plans are not hindered by evil men. And what God has said he will do will come to pass. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and that your word is truth. And Father, thank you that you recorded accounts for us in your word that help us to understand who 